The Crux of the Matter, Episode 48, The Theology of the Body. Hello and welcome to The Crux of the Matter, the show by pastors for pastors. My name is Pastor Todd Peppercorn. And this is Professor Scott Stigmeyer. Hey Scott, how are you? Uh, it's a little warm down here. Yeah? Yeah? Yeah. It feels uh, good though. It's a nice and sunny day here. I'm uh, kind of getting into the uh, getting into the groove of the new year here. We had kind of a crazy start with uh, with travel, and then we had our seminar two weeks ago, and all kinds of stuff. But we're uh, we're back in the saddle, I guess. So uh, so and and I should point out that as we record this, Scott, we are nice and uh nice and warm and toasty in California when many of our friends and colleagues are in Fort Wayne uh where it is i don't know like minus 50 something like that <laughs> they're <laughs> getting not. buried in snow yeah, maybe not quite that cold but mm-hmm. uh, it just sounds really cold to me and i miss i miss seeing all my friends but uh you know i'm okay being here i yeah. i'm not going to lie <laughs> yeah I, I i feel the same way i like going to the symposium um, but it happens to be in January, and um, I'm I'm just less and less tolerant of the cold. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyway, we probably shouldn't. Uh, yeah, I don't know how we end up keeping continuing to talk about California weather. That hardly even <laughs> seems possible. So right. what have So what have you been teaching this week? Um, well, so uh, we're just back from. Uh, well, we had a of course we had a break, then we had a week. And then we had a long weekend because of Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Gotcha. Um, so I kind of feel a little disoriented. Plus, I've got a new class this semester. I'm teaching church history, uh, which I'm really enjoying. Um, but so I guess what I'm teaching right now is just um, in that regard about the Gnostics and the, and the various heresies that the first Christians had to face and, and trying to make that make it obvious that that's very relevant today because there's nothing new under the sun. Right. Those things come around again. Yep, they sure do. So you're so you're trying to focus on on the then while while making some hooks into now. Is that sort yeah, of yeah sort of yeah. how you try to do it? So give me an right. example of a hook that you might use to talk about Gnosticism. Well, I mean, you know, so for one example, one of the early church heresies that we talk about is uh, Marcionism. Sure. And, you know, I know you know that what that is, but some of our listeners may not. Marcion um, was, a you know, an early second century guy who uh, thought that the t- God of the Old Testament was evil and the God of the New Testament was love, thought there was two, two separate gods. And he wanted to excise the Old Testament entirely. And he ended up, you know, uh, obliterating the canon and, and taking – uh, passages from the New Testament away, even that he felt were too Jewish, and I think that you know what I see in the church today, and I've commented, I've thought about this many times, is that we are effectively Marcionites. You know, we don't necessarily um, believe that the God of the Old Testament is a separate God, an evil God, a vindictive God, but we are ignorant to the Old Testament. You know, we don't cut it out of the Bible, but a lot of modern Christians are just plain ignorant of the Old Testament, and and therefore they have trouble understanding key parts of the New Testament. Right. So, you know, I, I can point that out where Marcion was, you know, uh, had was operating on principle to get rid of the Old Testament, but we, in fact, are kind of his heirs in the respect because we, we paid so little attention to those books. That's really true. In many, uh, many respects, that's, uh, that's true. One of the things just kind of tangentially connected to that point because it so centers around the Old Testament was 
I don't know if you caught in the news this uh, this this uh, comment, uh, almost an aside comment by uh, Pope Francis that the God of the Jew and the God of the Christian and the God of the Muslim is the same God. Did you uh, did you happen to see that? I just saw the headline, but I didn't read the article. Yeah. Um, and and without going into detail on that, that might be something that would be worth our our uh, conversation about at some point. Um, it does hi- it does highlight the fact that in all three of those cases we're talking about an interpretation of the Old Testament mm-hmm. you know, of what we call the Old Testament, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and so that is kind of continues to be a big deal even even on the worldwide stage that uh, that keeps going, no doubt about it. Right. I mean, I think that it you know it just impairs our ability to understand you know what do, what Jesus did on the cross. If we have don't understand the sacrificial system of, of Israel, if we don't understand the uh, the priesthood of Israel, there's so much there that will illuminate our understanding of the mission of Jesus and you know the Jesus Himself and the other and the authors of the New Testament are constantly alluding to the of the New Testament are constantly alluding to the Old Testament, and I think a lot of those allusions uh, are just missed. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And and I I think that they're often just missed even when we don't have a kind of an opposition to the Old mm-hmm. Testament. Mm-hmm. We just we right. just miss him. Well, yeah. I have um I have been been teaching on Hebrews for about twenty mm-hmm. weeks now, twenty one weeks, something like that. And we are we just finished up Hebrews chapter eleven last Sunday. Uh and and I thought it would be worth mentioning the last couple verses because we we really kind of uh wrestled with these a little bit from Hebrews eleven. Uh, and so this is this this by faith chapter that starts mm-hmm. at creation, mm-hmm. goes all the way, goes all the way through so many of the Old Testament saints, etc. Uh, and then at 39, we get and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Hmm. Now there were a couple things that we that we had a, a very interesting conversation on. The first was the observation that uh, that all of these examples by faith, Abraham, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, did not receive what was promised. So does that mean that God's not being faithful? Um, uh, that that kind of gets into the question of well, how did they receive it? They received it in their children. In their, in their, uh, in their descendants, if you will, um, mm-hmm. but then the the more, the more difficult part of that that was this uh, was verse forty that apart from us they should they should not be made perfect. Now, what does what does that mean along the way? That is a really strange. It's a strange verse. Um, it, and, and it gets at, uh, one of our, one of our favorite words. I know we've talked about plenty of times here, teleotho, teleothosin, um, telos, we can, we can see that completed purpose, et cetera, tetelestai on the cross, et cetera. So how is it that apart from us, the Old Testament saints aren't, aren't completed, aren't perfected along the way? Well, that's a real mind bender, I think. Well, well, don't leave us hanging. What, what did well, you teach? Well, I, I mean, there, and I think that first of all, it comes down to what does it, what does "made perfect" mean? Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean made without sin. 
That's right. not that's not how perfect is being used here. It really means uh, completed or fulfilled their their purpose, their their intention is is fulfilled or completed. Um, and so uh, just to use an example, God makes this promise to uh, uh, to to Abraham, you know, and in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Well, in order for that, for that promise to be made perfect, all the nations of the earth have to be blessed through Abraham's seed, mm-hmm. which does not happen until Christ. Mm-hmm. And, and you could say until Pentecost. So, uh, it, it, but it's an interesting verse because it highlights the, our relationship to the saints of the Old Testament. And yeah. that's really, and that that's really what I liked about it. It was really a good mind bender. Now, as I was talking about this and trying to explain explain teleothosin, uh, your colleague Professor C.J. Armstrong snuck into my Bible class and <laughs> sat and sat down. He's the Greek professor at Concordia Irvine, and then proceeded to not say anything. So, uh, so <laughs> did you call on him? At least I didn't because I had never met him in person. And I was, oh. I was almost certain that that's who it was, but I wasn't a hundred percent certain. <laughs> so uh, he didn't call me a heretic afterwards. So I guess that's a good sign. <laughs> so yeah. It was yeah. pretty funny though. Yeah. He's a nice guy. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, anyway, so that's kind of what we've been uh, what we've been teaching this week. Uh, our topic for today is is the theology of the body, and we have kind of talked around this in a lot of different ways. I feel Scott um, in our you know in our earlier conversations about bioethics and we've talked about um, I think we've talked about transgenderism on here at least once and we so we have kind of uh, skirted around or, or discussed at least a little bit this topic a few times I think mm-hmm. um, yeah. I'm actually as we're uh, as, as we're working on this, I am in the process of trying to write a, a Lent series on the theology of the body and particularly looking at the passion of our Lord in Luke's gospel since we're in series C and then in looking at what will probably be five other narratives from the gospel of Luke and how those teach a theology of the body. So, so this kind of stuff is, is very much on my mind right now. Uh, but let's, let's start with some basic definitions. Where did that, this term come from? I don't think it's in Peeper. So, so no, this is not no. a, this is a, a, at least a relatively new term, although I don't think that the concept is new. No, I mean, I'm not sure who coined the term, um, but, you know, the one who, sort of made this term theology of the body prominent was Pope John Paul II. For a number of years during his uh, papacy, he he would have these Wednesday morning uh, audiences. And he just basically started doing those. And over several years, these were collected into a book called Theology of the Body. And where he's talking about human sexuality primarily, you know, but it, you know, it, it goes to other things as well. 
Um, and then you've got other Catholic writers who are using this term either to explicate John, John Paul's stuff or to take it further. And, you know, cause his stuff really is about marriage and sexuality okay. and birth control and things like that, you know, but, gotcha. but he does lay, he does lay some foundations to try to, but his basic premise is this, his basic premise is that the human body is revelatory of God. Okay. There is something we can by studying the body, by looking at the body theologically. I don't mean medically or anything like right. that, but you know, the, but theologically, that can reveal something to us about about the Creator, about God. And then he he thinks it's primarily, especially in the union of Adam and Eve, in 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 marriage, um, that you know the one person gives himself for the other person, and that this in some way is reflective of the Trinity. Gotcha. And so, so that's where he, I mean, that's where that term comes from. I think most, I'm not sure if he was the first person to actually use that phrase, but uh, that's, I think what comes to mind for a lot of people when they hear that phrase. Yeah. So it, so this, this is talking maybe 30 years, maybe a little less than Mm -hmm. 30, 30 years plus or minus 35 years, probably. Yeah. The 1980s. Yeah. Yeah, The 80s prime, the 80s Mm -hmm. primarily, but it has been. This language has been adopted and sort of interpreted in a lot of different ways and places since then. Um, I mean, you're going to find evangelicals using this language pretty pretty regularly even, although I, I'm not sure how deeply it's understood. Uh, it definitely resonates with Lutheran theology, uh, I think, although there are there are perhaps some limits or in at least questions in how we understand uh, marriage as a sacrament, for example. I mean, John mm-hmm, Paul, mm-hmm, if I sure. recall, kind of makes makes a makes a lot of hay out of that. Um, and we may we may step back from that a little bit, but but why would be a good question. Um, and and the hmm, how to put it well, and probably the one of the big ways that it gets used today is is also in the abortion debate. I mean that's mm-hmm. that's for sure a part of it. Now, now here's where here's where I come at it, Scott. As a pastor, as a pastor, what I've seen, and you can tell me if I'm crazy on this, what I've seen is that uh, is that people are are really functional Gnostics, in mm-hmm. the sense that they believe, and they believe that this is Christian. By the way, they believe that. Um, the only thing that matters is the spirit or the soul. We'll say the soul, and mm-hmm. so, and that the body is is basically irrelevant. So as long as as long as your soul is kept pure, um, and 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 I think a misapplication of forensic justification could be used there. Uh, as long as your soul is kept pure, then it's all then. The body isn't all that important or becomes actively unimportant or even detrimental along the way. Do you do you think that that's that's a fair assessment, Scott? Did you see that in your parish work? Yeah, I I think so. No, I I agree. I think that there is a lot of functional Gnosticism in our culture. Um, It's it may not it may not be exactly like the ancient Gnosticism, which said that the, the flesh is evil. Um, but we would say, I think a lot of moderns would say, as you just did, that, uh, the flesh or the body is unimportant or is not as important 
uh, what really matters, what, you know, the real you is not the body. And I think a lot of Christians do think that way, um, although I don't believe it's a biblical way to think. Right. Uh, we, are, we are embodied souls, and there's a holism there. Uh, yes, they can be divided, and you know, yes, death does divide the soul from the body, the spirit from the body. But um, you know, the, we are created as embodied souls, and, and there's a holism there. So uh, one thing that I see is that people have this belief that uh, we can do almost anything we want, to our bodies because it's my body, you know, mm-hmm. I, it belongs sure. to me. And, you know, we treat the body like an, like an object. Uh, and I think we see that objectification in a number of ways. Uh, we, you know, we objectify others and make them simply tools for our own gain, or we objectify ourselves seeing, you know, why can't I change or enhance or alter my body for my own preferences um, or for my own comfort? You know, and I think we have to be careful with that. Uh, you know, I think we don't want to give the impression that the that the body is not part of what who you are and who you are in Christ. Right, right. Now, I can I can see a couple places where that could really get off the rails. Um, certainly, we can see how kind of the extreme abuse of that notion might even go to transgenderism or um, any kind of radical. Uh, radical surgery. What is this surgery called, where you have um, where where you have bone implants put it put in, like you know horns and all sorts of things? Mm-hmm, there's a term. Mm-hmm. There's a term for it. I can't remember what it is right now. But well, I don't know exactly. But various types of body modifications. Yeah, body modifications uh, mm-hmm. along along those ways. So so we can see it there, um, but we could also see it. I would say in funeral practices. We definitely mm-hmm. talked about mm-hmm. this at least a little bit in fu- in connection with funeral practices. So, um, so it has lots of lots of implications. Now, again, as a pastor, what I what I struggle with, and this is kind of why I'm flirting pretty seriously with doing this as a Lent series, is what I struggle with is figuring out where does this fit in our kind of catechetical structure. Mm-hmm. If you were to put the theology of the body in the catechism. What chief part would it fall under and why? Well, what, what John Paul II does is he starts by going to creation. Okay. He, he, you know, he just so talks first about article what is in, in our, in our the language. first article of the creed. Yes, the first article of the creed. You know, we believe that God has made us and, you know, Luther explains that very well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so I would start with that. I would include it there. I think you can put it lots of places. You, you can sort of – Put it in when we talk about the, the second article of the creed, when we talk about the incarnation, that Christ took on a body and took on a human body and is the ideal man. You know, he is the recapitulated Adam. And uh, I think you can get into it there. You may not use the term theology of the body, but you can be doing it. Sure. And I think you're going to do it in the Ten Commandments, too. I think you're going to do it when you're talking about uh, hurting and harming our neighbor, the right. fifth commandment, fifth commandment or sixth commandment, sixth obviously. Commandment. Right. Mm-hmm. Certainly, mm-hmm. Yeah. certainly it would fit, uh, it would fit in both of those categories. Uh, obviously it's going to fit in the third article as well. The resurrection of the body of the body. It's not right. the resurrection of the soul. It's mm-hmm. the resurrection of the body quite explicitly in the apostles creed. So it, it actually fits in quite a number of different places. I think, uh, and it's almost a presupposition in in Lutheran theology. Uh, that's how I would think about it. But 
because the attacks are kind of coming at us sideways, if we're not if we're not intentional about how we teach it and how we and how we uh, how we try to correct the the false the false teachings, um, it can sneak up on us. You know, I asked this uh, I asked this question about the resurrection of the body to my uh, to my catechism class on Wednesday. So so yesterday. Mm-hmm. And this is a class that that is, I think, sixth through eighth graders, basically. All right. And, and just asked, what does the resurrection of the body mean in the third article? What does that what does that mean? And, uh, you know, we had everything from when you die, you go to heaven to uh, soul sleep to um you know, a, a, a roughly a bazillion questions about, well, it, does this mean it's my body, but doesn't, um, uh, you know, and I was interested to me that they knew actually some of the biblical language, you know, doesn't, isn't it in the Bible somewhere about how we're going to get a new body? So is it actually mm-hmm. this body, you know, kind of referencing the first John passage. Um, and it was very interesting to watch how the wheels turn with thinking, thinking of yourself as a whole. Not as, not as a, a the sum of a certain number of parts, basically. Uh-huh. That that I right. am, uh, I, I there is one Todd. <laughs> there isn't uh-huh. a Todd Todd the body and Todd the soul and Todd the spirit. If you want to go that way, uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. there's only one me, and it's and it's a package deal, <laughs> basically. Uh-huh. Um, so it's so it's interesting, and and and. I think presents us with a number of challenges, but even more opportunities for thinking about how do we how do we connect the dots for our for our people in our theology of the resurrection, in our theology of of um, I'll say in our theology of pastoral care. You know how does the, how does having a, a rigorous theology of the body affect pastoral care? Well, I think that's a really interesting question. And how Yeah, yeah. You know, how is that how is that shaped? Well, it's well, I can I can certainly see that in connection with funerals. Um but also hospital visits. You know, I I am pretty darn intentional about if it is humanly possible when I am when I am visiting a person that I am that I am going to touch them. Mm-hmm. When we pray and I am going to give them a blessing and make the sign of the cross over them on their forehead, typically um, with my thumb so that they can feel it. Mm-hmm. And, and that is, in, to my mind, at least, that that is an important sense of this is your body. This is the body that God has come to redeem. This is the body that he that he seeks to heal and that you're not a pariah. You're not a leper. And, and, and this is why it's important for pastors to take the Holy Communion to people who are sick. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, that, that this is, you know, that we, that we are, they are still part of the body of Christ. You know, there's still, there's that word again. Yep. By eating the body of Christ, we are the body of Christ and we are incorporated into his body through baptism and, and through, you know, by grace. And yeah. so, you know, if we simply go to deliver a good word of hope, 
um, you know, a word of encouragement. Uh, th- that's great. But, but we also want to commune with the Lord and commune with him in the way he gives himself to us in his body and blood. And yeah, and I'm with you. I mean, I think that you, you want to have physical contact with, with your parishioner when they're, when they're in the sick bed and holding their hand or, you know, wiping their brow. I think that that is a, a way to express compassion, Sure. Um, and to recognize that they that they're still there, you know. Yeah. That, well, I'm gl- I'm really glad you brought up the Eucharist, Scott, because mm-hmm. um, because that that gets at the the sacramental presence, the the I know almost ministerial presence of of how how does God how is God present for this person to deliver them, to forgive their sins, to give life, to give hope, to give salvation. Well, because he has bound himself to them and he gives himself to them utterly. And Um, he gives himself not just spiritually. Right. And this isn't isn't an idea or a philosophy Mm -hmm. or a concept that, that uh, that you think about along the way. Yeah. Interesting, interesting. Well, this is uh there's lots of stuff to lots of stuff I think to think about with this with this. But um but that's kind of a that's kind of what I had to that I wanted to wrestle with a little bit. Any other thoughts on that in your part, Scott? I know this is a No, little... I I just think that as far as our reading goes, I think pastors especially want to be aware of of something called transhumanism. Mm-hmm. Um and this is the philosophy that we're gonna be able to use technology and medical advances to uh sort of kickstart the process of evolution and, and become something more than human or beyond human. And that's a different approach to medicine. It's, you know, it's, it's not yeah. medicine in terms of restoring function and, and healing, but medicine in terms of transcending our limitations. And I think there's a lot there yeah. uh, that as Christians, we need to re- we need to consider before we just endorse, you know, whatever technologies come down the pike. Yeah. And and just as another topic for us to consider at some point, I, I think we probably ought to talk about um, organ donation too. Mm-hmm. Um, that's uh, absolutely that's, yeah. There's there's a lot of interesting interesting uh, questions that can flow out of a uh, out of a theology of the body that I think are really worth exploring. Not simply as an idea, but as how does this affect our pastoral care. Mm-hmm. That's that's kind of my interest, at least for our purposes, on how this uh, on how this stuff is uh, is cooking. So interesting, very interesting. Well, we talked about a bunch of different things there. I will uh, do my best to get some uh, get some links to some of these things. You can find the you can find all of the show notes at the crux of the matter dot net slash podcast slash forty eight. Uh, you can also send us. Uh, feedback at feedback at the crux of the matter dot net uh, or you can find us on twitter at crux of the mat i think <laughs> oddly enough uh, you can find us on facebook type in crux or if you can spell stigmire or peppercorn you can uh, you can give that a shot there's at least a reasonable likelihood it'll be one of us uh so scott hmm. what's bringing you joy my friend well, since I'm back, you know, into the academic routine again, um, you know, I'm, I'm surrounded by books everywhere I go. I'm I, even in my car. I'm surrounded by books, and uh, recently got a new book, and this came in the mail. 
and uh, it it ties really well together with what we've just been talking about. Good. There's a lot of there's a lot of great texts on theology of the body, but one thing that I've been trying to find is the link between Christology and anthropology. Right. And so th- there's this there's a brand new book called Christological Anthropology. Interesting. Well, there you go. Yeah, yeah. It's Ancient and contemporary approaches to theological anthropology by Mark Cortez from Wheaton uh, College. And just thumbing through it, you know, where he goes, he looks at Gregory of Nyssa, looks at Luther, and you know, what what does embodiment mean there, and what is how does the 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 teaching that Christ became flesh, the Son became flesh, what does that say about man? Right. You know, we can talk about what that means in regards to the atonement, but what does it say about man that you know Christ became flesh, hmm. uh, the Son became flesh? I think that's now, is, a fascinating uh, concept. It's Cort- it's a great one. I love it. Mm-hmm. Is Cortez an evangelical if he's teaching at Wheaton? Do you know? I assume so. Um, I, I don't know anything about him other than that. So well, he would yeah. have to have – he'd have to sign their their statement of faith yeah. uh, of some kind. It will be uh, interesting to see if any of that – even how that evangelicalism kind of uh, comes out mm-hmm. in the way too. Right, right. So fun. Well, I'm going to I'm gonna do a book too. Uh, my uh, Joybringer is a, is a book I read about – I want to say – 10 years ago, almost exactly. Uh, it, it's a book. I may have mentioned it here before at some point. The name of it is Byzantium oh, yeah. by, by Stephen Lawhead. Have you ever read mm-hmm. this, uh, ever read this book? No, or not yet, but you've got me, you've got me intrigued. By oh, it is. It's such a great book. This, the way that I came to this book was, uh, in, oh, I want to say, uh, about uh, the winter of 2004, my wife and I had a miscarriage mm. and uh, a dear, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Pastor Rick Stuckwish, recommended this book to me as as a good as a good book and opportunity to kind of reflect on the theology of the cross and the journey that the Christian makes, which includes a journey of loss mm. And uh, and so and so this this book has had kind of a special place in my heart for that. That sounds really cheesy. I'm sorry about that. Um, <laughs> no, but uh, but it, it it's a great book. I've I've uh, it's been pro- it's probably been five years since I've read it. Now I would guess. But uh, but we're going to do that as our uh, book of the month at my church for next for next month. So I I'm kind of dusting off my copies. You can uh, you can typically buy a used copy of it on Amazon for about four bucks or something with shipping. So that's a pretty good deal, I think. And uh, and he's written, law has written a lot of other good stuff too, but this is a definitely a good one in my mind. Neat. So very good. I think that that should about cover it for us. Scott, do you have anything uh, anything else to uh, say for our dear listeners? No, nothing new. Nothing new. All right. No. With a uh, with a with a fine allusion to Ecclesiastes, we will bid you all good day, and we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.